0: Welcome to the next edition of our podcast. Today we talk to Dominic Hayes, one of the experts working on our space program, specialized in radio frequencies. But also he's a biker, a traveler, a blogger, marathon runner, and a very inspiring human being sharing a story of how can you run multiple marathons in a desert with seven kilos on your back and not really having access to much support. So if you feel tired, if you skipped your workout today because you feel like you're too old or your knees are painful, listen to his story. Here we have Dominique Hayes. Uh, hello, Dominique. Hi. <laughs> so this is the sound of a big yellow rubber chicken The Dominique brought along and this is arthur this is arthur nice to meet you arthur we'll be talking about arthur a bit later for now we'll explore uh what dominic does as his job because typically a job of somebody in the european institutions might look like a boring legal sit down kind of job what is it like for you dominic because it's a bit different to what every one of us else around here does when we're working on policies and legislation, your job is a bit special. So what do you do?
1: It is actually a very boring sit-down job. I work in a, <laughs> a big grey office in Brussels, but actually would like to think that the work that we do is actually very exciting. I was kidding when I said it's boring. No, it's a very exciting policy direction that we are taking with the Galileo program. Um, I work on the frequency side, so if you like, the, the beating heart of the system is often, the, often called the, um, uh, often referred to the atomic clocks that are the heart of the system. But I like to think of the frequencies as the arteries that relay the information from those satellites, atomic clocks, to receivers like you have in your smartphone, for example. And when I talk about atomic clocks, they're not nuclear power. It's just that the atoms are the basis of the timekeeping. In the, in the clocks mm-hmm. uh, they're, they're the most accurate clocks flying in space at the moment and that allows us to achieve the, the best accuracy of any satellite navigation system out there at the moment
0: which is also one of the reasons why we are so proud of the European Space Programme because it's really one of the flagship products where European Union manages to deliver concrete results unfortunately general public is not always aware of them so other than whatever satellites do in terms of sending the signals I guess for the telephones, uh, what is it that the Galileo program does for us?
1: So the Galileo program, as I said, gives you the most accurate um, satellite navigation signals available at the moment. So it underpins so much of what we, we do in our society today, so timing um, is often a forgotten aspect of, the, of satellite navigation. So many of the networks, in fact, most of the networks that we rely on, electricity networks, gas networks, telephone networks, all rely on GNSS, Global Navigation Satellite System, uh, for their timing information.
0: Which is the so-called European Galileo system? So it's,
1: it's Galileo, it's uh, GPS, which I'm sure you've all heard of GPS, there's a Russian system GLONASS. And there's a Chinese system called Baidu. And together, they are the GNSS, the global navigation. That's not the
0: Chinese Baidu, the dating site, right? No,
1: that's Baidu. This is bay, more Beidou, I think they call it. It's <laughs> oh, slightly right. different spelling, but it means uh, North Star in Chinese.
0: Excellent. And so your job is different in a sense that you get to hang out with all the Americans yeah. and Chinese and travel around the world Absolutely. with them and so, discuss what exactly?
1: So I get to hang out with all the cool people around the world talking about frequencies. Um, so I have to visit uh, the, the other systems and make sure that the frequencies that we use for satellite navigation, particularly for Galileo, Uh, are compatible with all the other systems and that we we minimize any interference into the GNSS frequency bands Um, there's also a very big conference at the end of this year in Egypt where we talk more globally about frequencies not just satellite navigation but satellite in general or even terrestrial communications 5G is going to be a big topic there that's a a four-week conference held in Egypt uh, in November that's the World Radio Communication Conference and we've been preparing for that for the last four years.
0: And so at the end of the year you'll have a chance to spend this whole month in Egypt with all the masterminds in radio frequencies from all over the world discussing the future I guess of the technology and where it's going and, and how we will be collaborating with the other systems.
1: Um, yes, it's, it's, it's not just satellite navigation, as I said, so it's all frequency usage around the world. We follow um, the international radio regulations in all radio operations, and every three or four years, the radio regulations are changed to take account of new technologies. So for example, 5G I mentioned, so frequency usage will change according to the requirements of 5G, um, so the radio regulations will change to accommodate 5G's requirements.
0: And so during this conference should I imagine room full of people who are somehow working towards each other or against each other in order to steal a bigger part of the frequency spectrum for themselves. I'm trying to tune into the mood as in is this one big happy family and we all are working towards one common goal or is it more like what people generally know from multilateral negotiations where it's often a zero-sum game and a victory for one global power might mean a a loss for another power. Yeah,
1: it's a mix of both. So each region or sometimes each country will go into the 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 overall discussions with their own position in the course of the four weeks those positions will merge into a single set of results that are written into the radio regulations so one of the one of the phrases i i most like that describes the process at the end everyone is equally unhappy so that describes you may not get what you want but you get enough to work with for, for the next four years.
0: Because through the art of the compromise, you arrive to a degree of satisfaction that enables yes. you to, to continue moving yes, the, the sector forward. Yeah. How is it for you in terms of your individual position in the negotiations? Because this is a very technically demanding subject, is it a lonely place to be if there are conflicts or if the position that you're defending isn't really uh, taken on board by the other partners? Where you need to change the position? Typically, in other bilateral negotiations that we're doing, we can always have the hierarchy with us or call them up and, and discuss how we can change the position. Whereas in this kind of techie subject, it might be a lonely place, I guess, for you?
1: It can be a lonely place, but um, as we are. Well, I represent the Galileo system and I'm representing the EU effectively when I'm at this conference. But that means I'm working with 28 member states or 27 in the next few months, unfortunately. Uh, I'm a British guy, so I'm actually very disappointed by the Brexit uh, referendum result. Do
0: you want to bet on how it's going to end Uh, up on the Halloween weekend?
1: I'm not going to take any any bets on that. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's a very sad state of affairs, unfortunately. Um, But as I say, I I will have the 28 member states with me at the the conference, or 27, as I mentioned. Uh, So we work together as a team to achieve a result. Um, So it's not so lonely. And in fact, most of the really tough discussions are done in the four years before uh, the the conference. So we work with our EU member states to make sure that the positions we have are aligned with their own views. And then when we work together at the conference, we work together as a region, let's say, um, with other extra EU countries, like uh, even Russia, for example, is a member of what is known as the CEPT, the the Conference of European Posts and Telecoms Mm -hmm. administrations.
0: Mm -hmm. In terms of the results of all these programmes, sometimes on the one hand, I'm really happy that experts like you come into my life and I get to also myself, I get to know more about what we're doing and like the more nitty gritty of how it's really impacting our everyday life. What's a bit saddening is that the general communication part of things and the the marketing effort behind the policies is oftentimes not a priority. And as you mentioned, Brexit referendum might be one cases where maybe if people knew better what we do the result could have been different what do you think about this kind of marketing role of us as policymakers? should we communicate more or in a different way
1: i think it's very important that people know the benefits of the work we do one of the one of the missions that i went to this this year was to nigeria and there we met with the nigerians to discuss a possible system that would benefit their aviation Uh, use in Africa so we were presenting to them what the Galileo system does what the EGNOS system does and EGNOS is a another system that's run by Europe that augments GPS for particularly for aviation use it allows it to be used in safety critical landing situations for example so we were presenting this to the Nigerians and we can kind of see them looking at us and thinking why are you presenting this to us you know what you know what is it that you are wanting in return Because this is all provided free of charge, uh, EGNOS and Galileo, for them to use. And so they're looking at us, why are you providing it free of charge? Um, We see the benefits uh, for Africa to use this system. Anything that benefits Africa benefits Europe, because we see that migration is one of the challenges that faces Europe. And if if Africa as a continent develops its economy so that people are less inclined to leave it not only benefits them because they they are they have a better way of life for example it benefits europe because we see less migration perhaps and so this is one of the maybe the, the intangible benefits of having a system like galileo and egnos where it's maybe not so well communicated that benefits for africa also benefit europe and this is maybe one area that we could maybe um work on in a better way
0: absolutely absolutely especially because it's really Like, these are tangible benefits for the Africans, which translate into economic growth over there. It's just the general public doesn't really know too much about them or isn't aware of the broader context. Yeah, it's difficult
1: to convey detail. And and often what we do is very detailed. And so it it becomes a very difficult task to kind of uh, distill the message into something that's understandable by an everyday person.
0: Now, turning into another identity that you have, because I find it really interesting that given that you have this very intellectually demanding job and you live on the road a lot of the time, you also have family, you have kids, you also find time to travel for yourself. So you've been a biker, biking in all kinds of continents globally. Uh, what is this other identity and passion that you have? What is it like? Who are you outside of your job?
1: Yeah. So motorbiking is a big part of my life I, I, I got my motorbike license probably about 12-13 uh, years ago and then I've been a passionate motorbiker since then and my friends call me Biker Dom and I have a blog
0: oh yeah that's also your blog yeah, so a, a for your blog. friends they yeah. can follow you on
1: so bikerdom.blogspot.com okay. and uh, yeah so I, all the trips I go on uh, we, we've been to India Cambodia Bolivia Patagonia uh, Nepal Tibet uh, Vietnam all these places when i go on a trip trip with my friends uh, i write about the adventures that we have on you uh, know in our day so typically we'd ride for a day and at the end of the day i would i would write up the adventures that we'd had that day and post it to to the blog and initially i did it for myself
0: was it some kind of like your self reflection uh, or journaling yeah. routine that you develop for yourself? Because I guess you can be tired enough to just lie down and go yes. to bed with your friends.
1: So often, often yes, I'm writing for an hour after, after my friends have gone to sleep. So I'm up there tapping on my, what used to be a BlackBerry in those days, and uh, I love the BlackBerry keyboard. I, I miss it. Um, but I'm tapping away on my BlackBerry keyboard until like an hour after everyone else has gone to bed. Initially, it was for me. So I wrote it, as you say, self-reflection. But then gradually, as more and more people started to read it, particularly relatives of my friends who were following uh, the trip, they actually found it a good way for them to keep in touch with with what their relatives were doing on the trip. So then it became more of a, uh, for them. So I, I started to write with the audience in mind, and, and then the, the blog became a kind of a... Uh, a daily update on what we what we got up to, who who fell off that day, for example. Oh, I had a flat tyre. Yeah, those kind of things. And so you know, I enjoy writing, and, uh, and yeah, I think people appreciate the style that I that I write in.
0: And so, if somebody goes to Bikerdom now. What I find is this fascinating download of experiences from this absolutely mind-blowing journey of them last year. So let's talk about how you moved from the two wheels to your two legs and decided to run marathons in the desert.
1: Yeah, so initially it was two wheels, but then uh, I kind of transitioned to what my friend called a dom uh, a couple of years ago. And last year I ran the Marathon de Sable in Morocco, in the Sahara Desert. It's uh, quite an adventure, and it was a seven-day seven-day uh, event, um, 235 kilometers through the desert, carrying all your own food, your equipment. Um, they provide water for you, and they provide a tent, a very basic tent, but essentially you have to carry a sleeping bag, all your washing equipment, all your food, uh, your cooking equipment. And from day one, you carry that. So for the seven days, so that's a real challenge—not just the running part, but actually all the logistics that go into it. You have have to prepare all the kit in advance. Uh, I never thought I would be weighing uh, things like sleeping bags, for example, to to find out how much they weigh. Even things like your your phone. I I weighed my phone. I weighed the headphones just to tally up the number of grams that I was carrying to try to minimise the weight that I would carry from day one.
0: And so, how did it work out, all your preparations? Because I guess oftentimes when we are embarking on this kind of challenge that is more or less challenged into the unknown, it's it can be tempting to not prepare enough or not give sufficient, I guess, weight or importance yeah. to factors like weighing your phone. So uh, then you arrive there, you are in the desert, you're with a couple of your kilos on your back. And you're supposed to run the, all these yeah. hundreds of kilometers in the desert in extreme conditions. Yeah. So how did it evolve?
1: It went very well. I mean, um, all the food that I took was was perfect for me. They say your taste buds change dramatically over the course of the seven days because you are
0: dieting, the, detoxing. The, yeah,
1: well, yeah, effectively detoxing. So you have you have to, you're limiting your food intake because you have to carry it. So you don't want to carry too much food. You're you are in a very hot environment. So you have to take salt tablets. So they said it went up to about 40 degrees centigrade, but I didn't really feel it was that hot. I would say at least 35. It's a dry heat. And I found that running in the dried up riverbeds actually was the hottest because you're in a kind of a a valley. Mm -hmm. So the heat gathers there. You get the the hot rocks that are um, providing you with the heat. So you're running through that kind of difficult heat environment and I had to train for that as well so in in the few weeks before the event I was in my basement in my in my house on a an elliptical cycling machine I was in I think four layers of fleeces and I was sweating I had a, a electric fan heater blowing in my face so I was doing this and drinking and it was this that absolute way of going about it yes i mean you can you can go to specialized uh, Training. Labs, okay. yeah, where they they prepare you for the heat. But you know, I'm I'm uh, let's say I wouldn't say stingy, but I tried to minimise the cost, so I didn't want to have to spend money on that. So I I did it in my own basement. I I set up a I turned the heating on full. Uh, That's another challenge because in uh, in Belgium, for example, in in February or, the heating or never March, works. yeah, you know, you're running outside and you're training for an event that's going to be in 35 40 degree heat and yet you're running in in 5 degrees or 10 degree um temperatures so i was wearing multiple layers when i was training and uh yeah you have to, you can't prepare fully for that but i did my best for the event
0: so let's talk about how did you feel during the race what were the challenges what was the pain talk to me about the pain I think it's an interesting concept that isn't very much out there because we were brought up in the society which teaches us to push through pain and not really yeah. talk about it, but I guess in these kind of extreme conditions, when everybody's on the verge of their physical forces, yeah. how is it?
1: So I was expecting pain from the, from the beginning, and when I, I kind of gave up running a few years ago because I had pain in my knees, um, but then a friend of mine convinced me to to do a race in the desert, and I found that I had no pain during that race. So then I kind of renewed my running ca- career. And I was expecting pain, and I did get pain. I had pain in my knees, I had pain in my ankles. But most of the pain came from blisters. So everyone who runs, or pretty much everyone who runs the the MDS, will get blisters at some point during the race. And I, in fact, on the long day, uh, which is 86 kilometers, um, I had blisters. So one of
0: the days of the race... Is an 86 kilometer
1: yeah. race. It's, it's the long day. It's, it's day four and day five together. So you get two days to run this huge distance, and everyone is dreading it. But once you've done that long day, it's kind of you've broken the back of the event. Okay.
0: So the first day is one, two, three. Uh, so about for 30 kilometers, for, kilometers for, the first,
1: for the first few days, and then effectively a warm up. So there's a bit of desert, there's a bit of dried up river bed. There's sand dunes, there's uh, some rocky rocky mountains that you have to run through, that's what I enjoyed most. So um, how does the
0: daily routine look like before we get to the extreme yeah. day? You do your run and then you arrive to the camp, you set up your cooking device, you eat, I don't know what, your dried noodles so, and so you go So dried, dried
1: food, yes, uh, you add water, you set up a fire, and then you cook your water, add it to your dehydrated food. You enjoy your meal but before that typically you would go to the medical hut and get your blisters sorted out so there's a whole medical facility that they they provide for you it's one of the good things about the organization, it's it's very well geared up to looking after the, the runners.
0: Do you have any magical solution for us women who get blisters from heels all the time? Mm. How do they heal blisters over there?
1: Yeah, uh, so they, they pop the blisters and they put iodine into the into the blister to dry iodine. it up. Iodine. It's a red it's fluid. Like, it, uh, it dries or... up the blister and, and when that hits your blister, uh, the pain is really intense. <laughs> Uh, but it actually works really well. So they, burst. I'm not
0: sure that's what us ladies are going to be doing well, with our blisters. I think I think
1: you would, <laughs> because
0: <laughs> if we knew what it
1: is. If you can't deal with the blister, then you can't run, uh, really. But they dry up the blister and then they tape. Well, you tape your foot afterwards, but essentially you tape over the toes with a cloth tape, and that really helps to minimise the chances of getting blisters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I did that on, I think. Uh, four of my toes. but the, the the toes that I didn't tape, I got blisters on. So in hindsight, if I was doing it again, I would tape mm-hmm. tape my toes mm-hmm. more rigorously.
0: So you take care of your toes, you eat, and then you go to sleep, then in, you go to sleep yes. in your tent that yes. somebody set up for you. And yep. then you wake up really early to do yep. the second race, yep. so third Indeed. race. And then fourth race is 86 kilometers. Yep. What is this? It's like two marathons in a row yeah. that you're supposed to do in a desert with all your load.
1: With your load. So by the two
0: days and one night.
1: Yeah, so at the start, it, the load is about nine kilos. But then gradually, as you eat your way through your, your backpack load, it reduces. So on day four, I guess it would be around seven. Seven, six or seven kilos you must
0: be really disciplined not to eat the supplies you have for the following days right like what if you have all these cravings to have your whatever you binge on when you're yeah, normally so, at yeah so I,
1: I had arranged my food in daily rations so each day i had a, I had a bag of things that i would eat for breakfast uh, and things that i would eat during the race uh, trail food which included chocolate m&ms which I think was the only thing, the only chocolate that would survive the desert heat.
0: <laughs> Thanks to m and for yes. good production,
1: the <laughs> And then for dinner, I would have a dried meal and I would have a, an intense burst of flavour. Parmesan cheese was the, was the one cheese that I knew would survive the heat and... Mm-hmm. That had a very intense flavor that was was really great at the end of the day.
0: So this was sufficient to really satisfy the yes. cravings to eat the stuff that you normally use. Absolutely,
1: to yes. So that was that was very good for me. And each day would be a, a, a similar kind of meal, not exactly the same because variety is the spice of life. And so I would I would have something that was slightly different each day, but the food worked different really well. Different color of M and M's. Different yeah. M and M's was one thing that stayed the same, unfortunately. <laughs> but uh, yeah, during the race it was fine. So the long day itself, you start off. Uh, I think we started off at seven a.m. And in my case, I ran pretty much non-stop until two a.m. in the morning. So around so that's, halfway.
0: what, well, twenty hours. Uh, I think it
1: was uh, just All under right. eighteen hours that we that I was running. I made a decision halfway through the race that I would run continuously. Um, and it was, it was a way because it was of,
0: gonna win you at some point yeah, it would compared make up to the time. other ra- racers Yeah some, who, some would races taken would stop
1: Yeah, some some races would stop for a, a break for a three or four hours, but I decided to, I had enough energy to run through. About um, You
0: decided you had enough energy to yeah, sound like my blowing yeah. really. sorry, <laughs>
1: continue. Yeah, so about halfway I stopped and I realized I had a huge blister on my on my foot. So I I think I patched it with a big plaster, uh, put on my running shoes and just got on and got on with it basically. Um, and then towards the end of the run, uh, it, it's getting dark. You put your head torch on, so you're running through the desert. It's it's pitch black. The stars are amazing. You see a fantastic skyline. You you can see a few maybe. Uh, A few hundred meters behind you, you have runners with their torches on. Maybe a few hundred meters ahead, you see another runner. It sounds Um, a bit
0: spiritual. It is very
1: spiritual. So that particular day, running in the dark, it can be very spiritual. And many people go and uh, appreciate the spiritual side of 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 the event.
0: Is there also a spiritual angle of the whole race for you? Like, can you? I mean, you don't have to go into details, but are there like personal breakthroughs that you had on the way in terms of your? life your capabilities your future your relationships whatever
1: yeah i suppose it's a it's a life event this this it's a huge challenge to to do and and when you've when you've done it it's a it's an amazing achievement uh, for me personally when i came out of the uh, having completed the event i i felt that i could achieve anything it's one of those things it's one of those mammoth achievements you think wow i've done that you look back on it that was a really tough event, and yet I did it. I I, would, I managed to go through the pain, I managed to go through the heat, the distance, and I still achieved it.
0: And so when you're there, the night of the race, which is normally supposed to be split in two days, and I'm sure you're tired and starving, and and there's this heat blowing <laughs> into your face, and some of the other runners are, I guess, pulling off to have a break, what is this strength that arises in you that makes you continue where where does it come from
1: yeah it's a strength i think i've always had particularly from when i was at school there was a teacher that used to ask if you could do something can and he'd end the sentence with can do so he'd ask you to do something and then say say can do so i i think i developed this can do spirit and i've always enjoyed challenges and I think it's it's stayed with me since those school days. I, I challenge myself when I'm out running. So if I have a choice of direction, so if I turn right, I I, I can I can go home quickly, get back to my my uh, my base quickly. Or if I turn left, it's a slightly longer route, or maybe a much longer route. But generally, I will take the longer route because I I see it's a challenge, and I, I'm always doing that to myself. I'm always challenging myself, taking the slightly longer way. To get back home, and so the That's same was me. with
0: this race here. Yes, so you decided to push through and continue the Indeed. race and yes. finish on the morning of yeah. the fifth day. Yeah, and then you say it means that you will manage.
1: Yeah, so when you've done the long day, you really feel that you've you've, you've done the event. The next day is the marathon day, so it's a full marathon. So, generally, everyone tries their best to do a, a good time for the marathon day. So, then, for those who think yeah. <laughs> marathon is
0: their ultimate challenge for you, it for you was the last phase,
1: really. Yeah. So, in, in fact, in my training, I did, uh, I did a marathon in, in the training, and it was, uh, I think it was 40, maybe 40, uh, 45, 46 kilometers in my training, carrying a backpack, running through the streets of Brussels and back home. And I thought that would be my slowest marathon. No, I thought, thought the marathon des Sub would be my slowest marathon, but in fact it wasn't, because I, I I did a time of something like um, six hours for that marathon, which is not too bad for a marathon, considering the 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 the, the terrain, the, the little bit of desert sand dunes, a little bit of uh, uphill in in the rocks, considering the heat, considering you're carrying a load. So for me, six hours was a, was, was a good time.
0: Is it a good result? Also, thanks to the team spirit with the other racers.
1: Yeah, the team spirit is amazing. So you you meet people during the event, you you pass them or they pass you, and everyone says hi to each other. One of the things I, I remember most uh, about the 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 long day. Um, well, there were many things to remember. but One thing I stuck in my mind was when the top fifty runners set off about three hours after the the rest of the. Of you know, the thousand or so runners who do this event, so you get a chance to see these really top-class runners go past you. And uh, the the leader of the race, when he passed me, he was on a an uphill slope. And what really stuck in my mind was that he was pushing on his knees going up. So he he stopped running and he was he was struggling to get up this just this like hill, you were. just like me. That made me realise that they were human, just like us, and that they had to.
0: And you're uh, in all of this together.
1: And we were doing this together, yes. So you could see them running and struggling in the same way that you were running and struggling.
0: And I guess all of these people must be super competitive people who yes. always give yes. themselves much more ambitious goals compared to whatever their yeah. cohort of friends are or family. How do you define success and failure in this kind of race? Because I assume that not everybody manages to finish. How do you get yourself into this mindset or is it necessary for you to finish to not take any other option as an option as we often hear failure is not an option or like do you kind of surrender and let's see what my body carries me through and whatever happens will be successful in any case because participation is a success
1: yeah so when you start the event you are aiming to complete it that was my Aim from the beginning to make sure I finished the finish the event. But so I started out as a what they call a completer uh, Completing was the aim. But then gradually, as I got further into the race, I became a competitor. So I, I went from being a competitor to a competitor, and I, I started to feel that I could, you know, I can finish the race and I can maybe do a good time. And then maybe the next day was tougher. So then I became a completer again and then another time a competitor. So you kind of had this switch going on and off during, during the event at various times when maybe you're feeling a, a bit more strain, you're going uphill or it's a particularly hot day. So depending on the mood, you'd go from completer to finisher. But I would never not feel that I could complete it. I, that in my mind... I wouldn't. I wouldn't even contemplate dropping out unless maybe I broke a leg or something. So for me, completing it was my ultimate aim.
0: Was the ratio of people who don't complete it, or one of your buddy, buddies that were running with you? How was it for them?
1: Yeah, there was one of the guys in our tent who actually was seventy-two years old. So seventy-two. An, years an amazing old. guy. He he um, he'd, he walked the event, but you know, for him at that age, still a very significant thing to do. He finished a long day. Uh, which is an amazing achievement. He, I think it was about 35 hours it took him and everyone gathered at the end of the day to watch him come in and it was a very emotional time. Uh, the next day was the marathon day and he was really drained at the start of that. So in fact, unfortunately he didn't finish the event Uh, Which was a great shame. It was, I think, it was about five kilometres from the end, but it was just clear that he wasn't going to be able to finish it. But he wasn't the only one. In fact, I think it was. He should look back on it with some pride because there were many other competitors who dropped out before him. Mm -hmm. And so for him, it was a big achievement that he got that far. Um, I guess about five percent don't finish. They they do try to encourage you to finish, and there's a lot of encouragement for. People who are feeling that they they can't finish it to be given motivation, let's say, to to finish the event. So there is a good pass rate, but there is also a significant failure rate. Out of how
0: many people who did the So there's about a thousand people that
1: take part each year.
0: So I find it's really an inspiring story of how you like your mind is capable of anything and then you can force your body to follow your dreams i guess i feel it's really really fascinating and what i'm thinking about how does this spill over to your performance at work where it's oftentimes very challenging does the experience of multinational negotiations make you stronger in the race i guess not do Mm -hmm. the results in your um, physical challenges, do they make you somehow better prepared for what you're going through at work? I or think so. Or how you're yeah. leading when you're in difficult human context?
1: Yeah, I think the challenge of doing it and completing it, um, as I said, it, it, it made me think I can do anything. So I think that will help you in your everyday life. Uh, gives you the confidence to do your job, gives you the confidence you know, in everyday life. And I think one of the things I found most beneficial is that it's a good talking point. So one of the key parts of my job is networking, speaking to people from other countries. And often I find that some of the contacts that I have follow the blog that I write, and they're very interested in my adventures. So and this in very itself... is
0: interesting because most of us work in a typically European, like intra-EU context, working with the other 27 countries. So we are not challenged, in a sense, by the intercultural Differences within Europe, whereas for you, you're mainly working with the other continents and other yes. superpowers. If yes. I may say so, so how is this relevant for the work with them?
1: It's it's extremely relevant because you you get to know um, different cultures during the race. You you meet people from other cultures. You, you mix with people. There were people from Russia. There were people from America that I would uh, socialize with during the during the events, um, and and that helps you in your in your job, I mean, I was working with this international environment before doing the MDS, but it does help. Helps you relate to people; uh, they understand who you are. You know that they are interested in what you you are doing, so it helps in the in the interaction that you have with them. When you want to negotiate with someone, it very much helps if you understand what their thinking is, and through an exchange building up a relationship, it helps you understand uh, their thinking and they understand you.
0: And in the races like this, I guess people get so authentic and almost naked in their experiences because it's so deep and challenging that then it gives you a different view of the personality compared to when we are in the professional context. Yes. Who are your superpowers as in your teachers your role models the people who hold the space for you and support you in pushing through and who's arthur by the way
1: oh yeah arthur arthur we so, almost forgot him yeah so arthur's uh, one of the mascots that i picked up uh, in tibet um when i was there a couple of years ago um uh, typically when i'm riding on my adventures i have a mascot and arthur was taped or yeah taped to my handlebars going through china and kids love him, you know. You stop somewhere and you get a group of kids gathering around, and you you squeeze after and make ah. a noise, and it always elicit a laugh or a smile from someone. So, it's a good um, icebreaker when you meet people for the first time in a in a strange place. And Arthur came with me uh, on, on the MDS. So he, How he much also, does he weigh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did weigh him, I can't remember. Um, uh, I did put him on a diet beforehand. Uh, it was an unnecessary luxury, but I, I like to have a mascot with me when I'm go- when I'm doing these crazy things. Of course. He also came to Mount Elbrus uh, earlier this year. I tried to climb Mount Elbrus. Unfortunately, we didn't get to the summit because of the weather. But Arthur was also with me then. So, yeah, I'd like to think that he comes with me on all my adventures now.
0: And so I guess you'll continue from your desert experiences to the mountains and yes. continue challenging yourself in even more difficult natural conditions. Indeed.
1: So one thing I learned from the MDS is that I like I like the mountain environment. So I, that's why I, I entered to do an event uh, climbing Mount Elbrus in Russia, Um, A few months ago. Um, Does it
0: count as a failure for you given that you say that the weather made it impossible for you to continue or not really?
1: It's uh, a piece of the puzzle. For me it is a failure. Is it? For me it is a failure. In fact the organizers at the end of the event gave you a medal so congratulations you've done this event. I gave the medal back because I felt that I hadn't succeeded. It's unfinished business and i'd like to think that i would have another opportunity to climb mount elbrus maybe next year or the year after
0: so we wish you good luck thank you to conclude what is your piece of wisdom that you can give to all of us who often may feel that there are limitations to what's possible either mentally or Spiritually or physically, or we're just tired and we like napping on Saturday afternoon. While you would already be running your I don't know second <laughs> or third marathon. So, what is it that people can remember next time it gets difficult for them?
1: I think uh, one of the two messages really. Um, there's always more. You, your body can always do more. You think you've you're tired. You want to sit down, but in reality, your body is capable of so much more than you think it's capable of. And you will surprise yourself by pushing through the barriers, the mental barriers, and they are mental barriers, because the, your body reserves are incredible. And unless you've got a broken leg or a broken arm, generally you can push through pain and uh, achieve what you think you can't achieve. And the second thing I want to say is there's always time to fit new things into your life. So if you think, you're, you've got, you, if you think your life is too full of things, generally you can always find a way to fit something new in.
0: Is there a special efficiency hack that you have, given that really your job is very time-demanding, you travel a lot, you must be jet lagged half of the time when you're supposed to train, you have family, so how do you get over all the excuses that are popping up in your head when you don't feel like training?
1: Uh, I don't think I have a, a hack, no. No no real...
0: You just don't pay attention?
1: Just to... get on, you know. One of, the, one of the things I do when I'm training is I have a training schedule and if i know i've got to do a run of a certain length today then i just do it
0: thank you very much thank we'll you. be following you on bikers down and let's see what is the next challenge that you're going to be up for this year or next year
1: yes um a couple of marathons no doubt maybe some uh mountain climbing um i'm due to be going to the Pamir mountains next year which mountains the Pamir mountains in uh tajikistan it's the, the western end of the Himalayas. So they go up to about 4,500 metres.
0: Have you met any Slovaks on the way? What's your relationship ah, with Slovakia? That's a good question.
1: So, um, yeah. I, mean, I was
0: supposed to finish, but this yeah. is the last question okay. I'm asking. So
1: I think, I think there were some Slovak runners during, that I met during the MDS. I, I can't say for sure, but I'm, I'm pretty sure there will be some Slovak runners during uh, the MDS, either this year or last year. And
0: throughout your work context?
1: So in the work context... Um, well, Slovakia, not specifically, but the the Czech Republic, yes, we have the GSA, the, GN, the European GNSS. Okay. Since Supervisor we're all Authority. Czechoslovaks
0: anyway, yeah. it counts as well. So
1: that's based in Prague, so yes. that's the seat of Galileo, if you like. So The they seat are, of the
0: Galileo yeah, program is indeed. actually managed from Prague. Yes. And so what do you think about the benefits of the seat for Czech Republic? Are there like concrete spillovers for the country?
1: Yeah, I think so. It, it's Slovakia a tr- it's attracting... also
0: won an agency a couple of months yes. ago. So it's going to be the first agency of the European Union in Slovakia. Mm-hmm. So uh, many Slovaks ask already what is it going to actually mean for the country?
1: It brings in expertise. So um, the Czech Republic and uh, Prague now is a seat of GNSS expertise in Europe. It's becoming one of the seats of GNSS expertise. So it's attracting people from all over Europe working on the Galileo program, and uh, I think that benefits Prague and it benefits the Czech Republic.
0: Excellent. Thank you very much, and we wish you good luck with all the upcoming challenges.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for listening for follow-up you can find us on all major podcast platforms and all social media platforms including our instagram lights on europe so feel free to go there now and leave us your review likes feedback as well as tips on who would you like to hear interviewed next time bye